volunteer or paid subject in medical research? Which one is an accurate description? You're listening to ReachMD and the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman. Dr. Kimmelman is Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Recently, both the New England Journal of Medicine and a magazine often read by physicians and lay as well called The New Yorker actually ran very similar articles about is exploitation taking place in medical trials, especially since so many of the subjects or patients are part of the underclass. How would you respond if we begin to say, is there a shadow economy that is going on that involves healthy volunteers in phase one testing? That depends on what exactly you mean when you say shadow economy. That has somewhat nefarious connotations. Having said that, almost all of this research is taking place in private research clinics. Almost none of it is published in the peer review literature. And as a consequence, much of the activities that take place take place away from public view. So in that sense, one might call it shadowy or at least out of the public view. As for the economy, the evidence is pretty good that people enroll mainly for the money, something like 75% at least of individuals who enrolled in these studies, according to surveys, do so for the remuneration. There isn't a lot of good demographic information about who exactly enrolls, but the anecdotal evidence seems to suggest that it's primarily people who need fast money, students, poor people, immigrants, etc. So given the financial stakes for companies in terms of conducting these studies expeditiously, describing it as an economy seems altogether appropriate. So there's a sense in which one could say that there is a, a bit of a shadowy economy here. Are these professional volunteers, do they move from project to project and trial to trial? Again, because there is so little public reporting about these kinds of studies, it's really hard to know much about who exactly participates in the studies. There are anecdotal reports in the literature as well as in the lay literature and newspapers uh, that gives us some picture of the kinds of people that participate in these studies. And they seem to sort of divide into two broad categories. There are the occasional subjects, uh, someone that's like a student or something who participates in a study because they need a bundle of cash to tie them over for uh, a month or something. But there is another category of professional research subjects. There's actually a magazine called Guinea Pig Zero that was founded by an individual who was a professional subject. And these types of individuals are serial participants. They'll participate in multiple studies over the course of a year and can earn an income, not necessarily accumulate great wealth, but they can earn an income volunteering themselves for medical studies. You know, you touched on this magazine, Guinea Pig Zero. It introduces the whole area of these volunteers, if we can call them that, and the industry would like to call them volunteers, don't have an advocate. And is that the purpose of this particular journal that you just mentioned? I think that's the idea. You'd have to ask the founder, I think his name is Robert Helms, what exactly his motivations are in starting the magazine. But I think the idea is that subjects, and you're right to use the term subjects to volunteers since they're being paid, it's not exactly accurate to call them volunteers, but the subjects are isolated from each other. It's not like a workplace or an industry where workers have some interaction with other workers and can share common concerns and bargain collectively for improvements in work conditions. 
So I think the idea of a magazine like Guinea Pig Zero and these kinds of informal networks is to establish some way of sharing information about work conditions and tips in terms of actually improving those work conditions. So there is an interplay between them. They might warn each other about conditions at a particular site. This is not news. In 1996 in Indianapolis, there was a site that was actually closed down by the government and having to do with the Homeless Initiative Program. Mainly, almost all the people in Indianapolis were homeless, and they actually traveled long ways to come to Indianapolis to be involved in a research project. So is there a kind of a, a network, a phone system for people who don't have phones that tells them where to go, what pay they might get, what the conditions might be? My sense is that at least through magazines like Guinea Pig Zero, there is some kind of an information network, and I suspect there are other information networks. After all, if you participate in a study that requires an overnight stay, you're there with a bunch of other people who might be serial participants in studies as well, and there's inevitably going to be conversations that take place. But I don't know exactly how well developed or elaborate these various information networks are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman. Dr. Kimmelman is an assistant professor in biomedical ethics unit at McGill University, and we're talking about the unusual position that volunteers or subjects are placed in when they become involved healthy people in phase one studies. There's even a conflict in the literature about what these volunteers should be paid. Some people saying that you can't give them too much money because that's undue compensation and pressure. And others say that you should give them too little or reduce their amounts. But that doesn't seem fair because they're vulnerable and will work for almost anything. Where do we go as far as compensating these particular people? Okay, first of all, a couple points. There needs to be a distinction between payment and compensation. If you're compensated, you are being just that. You are being compensated for time you've put aside. If you damage a window in my house and you compensate me, you're not paying me for the opportunity to break my window. You are merely giving me the money I need to replace the window. So there's a distinction between paying people and compensating. Similarly, when people are compensated for the parking, that doesn't count exactly as a payment. So I think it's important to separate out those two issues. I don't think that the notion of compensation is ethically controversial. I think what gets more controversial is the question of payment and sometimes trying to distinguish between what is compensation and what is payment. You raise an important point. If you pay people too little, that really doesn't show proper respect for those individuals. If you pay people too much, that may represent what ethicists sometimes call undue inducement you may be incentivizing these individuals to overlook cherished beliefs or to put aside strongly considered judgments by paying them too much, or you may attract the most desperate types of individuals to these studies as well. So the way a lot of ethicists like to think about this is in terms of unskilled labor. Many ethicists argue that participating in these studies is very much akin to participating in unskilled uh, labor, and that as a consequence, participants in these studies should be paid slash compensated at levels that are comparable to what unskilled workers would get paid. You brought up an interesting point earlier that most research used to be done, and fairly recently, I mean 10, 15 years ago, used to be done in academic institutions. And it has moved out of academic institutions into what one would call off-site companies. 
And I remember as a medical student being a participant in a medical research project. I think it got me a few dollars to buy some extra pizza, which I wouldn't have had otherwise. So it was pretty common for my classmates to be involved in medical research for the money. And maybe we felt that there was really some altruistic reasons for doing it. First of all, what has caused this shift away from academic institutions? Okay, let me just make one important point, which is that uh, for many, many years, research has been conducted outside the academy, uh, human research, that is. Throughout 1960s and even before then, there were large volumes of human experiments that were conducted in prisons, for example. And going back even earlier, previous to the World Wars, there was medical research being conducted in orphanages. So it's not necessarily, strictly speaking, new. And Tuskegee and, of course, the Belmont Report all dealt with this. Correct. I think probably what is new is the financial stakes of research. As your listeners probably are aware, the cost of developing drugs is increasing significantly and has increased significantly over the last several decades. And there are significant financial stakes in completing these trials in as rapid a fashion as possible. And I think that moving some of these studies off campus provides a vehicle for completing these studies quickly and at relatively low cost. So we now have a new industry, these contract research organizations, which will get subjects, will look at the protocol, will take you from being an infant to finally growing up and going to the FDA. What is your feeling about these organizations which are kind of performing under the radar, that we are entrusting the ethics of running a research project to? I think that's a complicated question. They're under the radar in the sense that these companies are conducting research away from public scrutiny. Again, there isn't necessarily publication of results coming out of these studies. And certainly because of all the proprietary information these studies involve, there isn't really much visibility in the public of this research. On the other hand, it should be noted that the Food and Drug Administration does have authority over these CROs. And does have authority to conduct audits and inspections. Having said that, the number of inspections and audits that the FDA actually performs is actually quite small. There was a report put out by the Office of Inspector General a few years ago that indicated that only about 1% of trial sites are actually inspected by the Food and Drug Administration. And most of the citations and most of the attention of the FDA when it does inspect trial sites has more to do with paperwork and less to do with actually what happens with uh, human volunteers. So to answer your question, I think it's a concern, certainly, that this research takes place away from public oversight. And perhaps there might be greater energy put forth to improving the oversight of contract research organizations. These contract organizations need an IRB, and they are now another business, a for-profit IRB, which is, again, supposed to look at these companies and their research. And they're for-profit. And if they turn down a particular organization, the organization will then move to another IRB. There really seems to be a tension that exists that isn't being addressed. The problem really gets down to conflict of interest. The private IRBs are under tremendous pressure to approve protocols. Uh, if they disapprove too many protocols or create, raise too many questions, they risk losing their clients. So the incentive structure is really built for bias here. But having said that, I think it's important to emphasize a complementary problem at academic medical centers, which is that university medical centers derive substantial revenue stream from hosting privately funded clinical trials, you know, 
phase three type studies typically. As well, these university medical centers are running IRBs. They're responsible for these IRBs. And as a consequence of that, IRBs at university are at a bare minimum under a certain amount of tacit pressure to approve studies and to not create too many hassles for these protocols going through. Now, it's true that universities try to structure the governance of these IRBs so as to reduce or avoid this conflict of interest. But in the end, to meddlesome an IRB is a liability for universities. So I think that although I'm concerned about private IRBs, I think we also have to be concerned to some degree about whether or not there's sufficient or adequate independence even within universities. I want to thank Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman, who's been our guest today. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Thomas R. Saving with Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, and you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.